Every doctor that I've talked to will quickly tell you, this is the best we know with the evidence we have. There could be better, we just don't know it yet. Chemotherapy, I went through cancer. My oncologist rightly said, there's probably gonna be better developments, but this is the best we have right now. Yeah. And medical professionals will always say that. Wellness influencers will not. Yes. They will stick to a line and just refuse to budge on it despite contradictory evidence. Hi, this is the Hidden World Podcast, and I'm your host, Whitney Logan. Today, my guest is Derek Barris. Derek is an author and media expert based in Los Angeles. He is currently the head of content marketing and community at Centered, a columnist for Big Think and co-host of the Conspirituality Podcast. Derek has also written several books. His new book, Heroes Dose, The Case for Psychedelics in Ritual and Therapy, is out now. I came to know Derek's voice through his podcast, Conspirituality. I will let Derek explain the origin of the term conspirituality and what it means in our conversation. But for those of you who are unfamiliar, conspirituality is the intersection of conspiracy theories with the wellness and spirituality culture that we see proliferating online. The Conspirituality podcast helped me put words and ideas and nuanced conversations around this phenomena that that I have seen happening online, and I'm sure many of you have as well. It helped me understand how we got here and then what we might want to do in response to this. Derek is the perfect guide to walk us through this very real and um, endemic problem online. I invited Derek onto the podcast and he graciously accepted to talk in particular about the role of critical thinking. What is critical thinking? How can we do it? How can we increase those skills in ourselves as we interact with all the misinformation and um, too-good-to-be-true claims that may confront us in the social media landscape? We will link to Derek's website, and we will link to his podcast in the show notes. I'm so grateful that he has chosen to be here with us today. Welcome to this week's episode of The Hidden World. Um, so I, I found out about you through your podcast, Conspirituality, um, and it's a topic, the word is amazing. Um, I don't know who coined that. Uh, Charlotte Ward and David Voas in 2011 wrote a paper and Charlotte coined it. And interestingly, I'm going to have David on the podcast soon. We've talked before. And he's ready now to talk more broadly about the topics in that because he was more of, he was Charlotte's teacher and more of a supporter, but he had input on the paper. Interestingly, from what I've been told from people in the UK, uh, Charlotte Ward coined the term and the idea and is now a full-on conspiracy theorist herself who goes by a different name. And there are people tracking her over there. So 
it seems that she she coined this great term. Now, interestingly, there is a Vancouver-based rap band that formed in 2008 under the name Conspirituality. So Ward and Voas gave it form as in concept, but the word had been used the earliest we could find is 2008. Okay, tell me how you would define conspirituality. It is the merging of the wellness community and right-wing libertarian-leading politics, uh, which is nothing new. This is this historically has gone on over and over again. Uh, you can think of the political spectrum not so much as a as a line, as much of a circle, and it just really identifies the ways that the wellness holistic yoga worlds intersect with sovereignty and political terms that are traditionally conservative and right-leaning, particularly in times of cultural stress. Because the last time this really happened was in the 1960s where you had psychedelics movement, you had civil rights happening, but you also had the John Birch Society and you had a lot of conservatives really shaping America in the way that continues to this day really began in the 1960s. So you had these opposed, seemingly opposing forces that sometimes meet in the middle and then take off like a juggernaut. It does seem like a strange set of philosophical bedfellows. It does until you start to parse it and look at it for what it is, because my feeling is that it usually relates on the idea of individualism, the idea that I know what is best for myself and I'm going to be very vocal and active about that fact. There's a strong difference between what will happen in an individualist culture like America and collectivist cultures like you'll see in Asia. And neither of them are necessarily better or worse, but I would argue that when it comes time, comes to times of social stress, like a pandemic, for example, collectivism is a much better mindset to help for the health of the community, which isn't so much of a concern with individualist cultures. Yeah, um, that particular point about individualism being the common cornerstone of both um, philosophical or cultural paradigms. I, I do think that, and, and you all talk about this on your podcast a considerable amount, but the role of um, social media and the gig economy and the fact that when people want to get out of corporate shackles, it looks like one really nice option might be becoming your own brand. Well, that's that. Yeah, that's been perpetual. I think the 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 point that I always point to the time and the point in time that I point to is really the emergence of Instagram. I started practicing yoga in 1993. You can argue 1993, because that's when I started studying the philosophical traditions when I was getting my degree in religion. But asanas, I started practicing in 1998. And 
at that time, the arguments in yoga usually revolved around text or scripture. There were philosophical arguments, which has a long tradition in America dating back to the early 19th century. And then when you were in the studios, the text, the arguments revolved around the proper way to sequence a flow or the anatomical positioning of the body or whether to do pranayama or kriyas and the value of them and what you were going for. So they were much more philosophical and anatomical in nature. And everything evolves. I don't believe in a pure yoga. I don't believe in a pure anything. Everything is generational and cultural and dependent upon a lot of circumstances. So this idea that there was ever one true way to do anything is nonsense. But with the proliferation of Instagram, you saw a moment where it just purely became a celebration of the body. And along with that, you see the monetization of the body and the ways that you're going to see someone doing an intense posture and in front of them is a supplement bottle. And then they're talking about how that supplement has changed their lives. And then there's a Rumi quote with that. And then that became a model. <laughs> that a lot of people really ran with. And there's a whole generation of yogis and yoga instructors who that is the only model that they know. And while I'm, as I said, I'm not someone who believes in purity in any form and things evolve, I think sometimes the evolutions aren't for the best. And this is one case where that is true. Now, tethered to that, I would always argue that if people are moving and they're getting in shape in any capacity. I don't care the mechanism. So if you were inspired by that influencer in on yoga, the yoga Instagram person to start a practice and you got healthier for it, that's awesome. So my problem isn't the focus on the physical, but it was the monetization of the physical and the distance between where the practice originates and how it's being monetized that is both problematic and is part of what led to how something like QAnon could infiltrate that community. Hmm. Can you explain that a bit? How the monetization of the body then sort of laid the groundwork for something like QAnon to take hold in those communities? Well, it also would go back to what I said a moment ago about individualism, where there's a hyper intensive focus on the individual and the individual's autonomy. And as we've noticed, sovereignty is the catchword that relates these two. This is a community that is relatively checked out from politics and always has been. In fact, the precursor to conspirituality, you could argue, was a website called Yoga Brains that I launched in 2012 with four other Los Angeles-based yoga instructors, one of them being Julian, my co-host on Conspirituality. And we were friends and we've been friends with, for example, uh, the women at Off the Mat Into the World. And we really supported their message of, if you wanna think about what yoga's impact in a culture can do, you have to look at the social good and the politics, not just the self-regard that you have for your own physical fitness. And the fact that you can afford a vegan lifestyle, that you can afford to take classes in the middle of the day and then go out to brunch and all these things, which is rampant in Los, on the west side of Los Angeles. And they, Sean Halla, Suzanne Sterling, and then Carrie Kelly was there in the mix with them. 
they took that and they ran with it and did amazing social work. And we took it from a literary stance of being like, well, we're all writers, so let's attack this philosophically and look at some of the issues. And for the most part, we had a little following of a few hundred people that would chime in and, you know, we'd get some traction, but most people didn't want to hear it. They were like, why are you talking about yoga and politics? Yoga is my escape from politics. And I was like, you're escaping from politics all the time. You don't pay attention to it. Yoga historically is very political. Mm -hmm. And if you can't understand that historical reference, then you're just exploiting something without understanding the true value of what it is. Mm -hmm. But you had a community that was captive to the physical form. They found a monetization pipeline through supplements, which was a whole other conversation we can have. And I'm very focused on because the difference between proving pharmaceutical uh, efficacy and selling supplements is one of the biggest problems I think we have overall, especially since some of the things sold as supplements are pharmaceutical grade. Mm. But, but you, have, you have people who don't really research those aspects of, of what they're putting into their body and what it actually means. And so there's a level of privilege that I just mentioned that you can go to yoga whenever you want. You can afford to buy these supplements. You're downlining people on your oils, your supplements, whatever it happens to be. And then a pandemic arises, which historically is at least 12,000 years old from the record that we have. It really, when we started domesticating animals and collecting them for food and for labor is when we start to see the rise of pandemics and as well as when cities start. So we have a track record with them. The thing is we haven't had one on this scale in a hundred years. So that's five generations. Most people, we don't know it. We don't understand it. So for the first time in most people's lives, they're being told they can't do something. Hmm. And they're accustomed to being like, I do what I want. I go to yoga at 10 and then I go do this and this is my life. They have been in this Instagram bubble. They're, that's where they get their news. They go to Facebook and whatever the social media is, that's where they get their information. Yes. And so you go and then the people that inspire you and influence you, you see them and you might not recognize that they're monetizing your fear of a pandemic and a vaccine by selling you their supplements and trying to downline you. Mm -hmm. So you'll see a 10 minute talk, but then there's a link at it to go buy this with this code and you're going to save. And guess what? This is going to help you because the only way to combat a pandemic is to have a healthy immune system. And these substances definitely work to do that for you. So blue light, blue light blocking glasses. Uh, we're going to do a set. I'm going to do a segment this week on conspirituality about Gwyneth Paltrow's latest post, which is selling infrared blankets and jewelry to help with COVID. I saw that. And, yeah. And this has been happening the entire time. And so you have a captive audience who doesn't know what's going on. They're scared as all we all are, because we're dealing with something novel that we don't know how to combat. And you have a community that's prided itself on its autonomy and its health with no political understanding or background whatsoever. And probably for a lot of people, no critical thinking skills to be able to disentangle what is you're actually putting in your body, the, the efficacy versus placebo versus medicine. They have been bred on this idea of 
let thy food be thy medicine, which isn't what Hippocrates said. Mm-hmm. The actual text says food, medicine, medicine, food. They extrapolated from that and then thought, oh, let me, it's, it's food as medicine. That It could have been a prescriptive order. It had, we have no idea what it actually means, but it's on bottles and bags of everything now. Mm-hmm. And, and they just ran with it. And they, because these were the sources they turned to for information, they were indoctrinated into these crazy ideas and sometimes conspiracy theories around something that researchers were doing their best just to figure out. Yeah. Um, your, your point about critical thinking is, is actually um, really meaningful to me because, and one of the reasons I wanted to talk to you today, um, because it's a, it's a problem I've been diagnosing in myself and others for a long time. I um, was raised by healthcare professionals. My parents didn't really allow us to um, bring home theories without evidence, you know, from a very early age. We couldn't get away with saying things like, you know, they say, or um, research says, it was always like, who's they? What research? Where is it? Go bring it here. Okay, let me show you what's wrong with this study. And um, that was outside of my formal education, you know, and I, I went to graduate school where, where obviously I did learn more critical thinking, mm-hmm. but um, it's so seductive to be told that there is a bright, shiny solution to a problem that you're afraid of. Mm-hmm. And um, I, when I was, I was listening to um, an episode of Conspirituality this past week, I can't remember which one. Um, and one of you um, were talking about how the brain prefers to take shortcuts in thinking and reasoning because it requires so much less energy, actual caloric energy. Um, and, and I recognize that impulse in myself. I think it's really important to see how we all can get, um, sort of duped or misled because it's, it's convenient to get our biases confirmed and it's convenient to read a headline instead of the footnotes of the article. Um, and, and I'm curious about, you know, what you think is the most helpful information for people to have in order to become more curious or inspired to develop critical thinking and, and what maybe like handful of skills you can practice in order to make sure this is some kind of ongoing um, muscle you're developing? The first thing the mind is always the art of debating, which is almost non-existent on social media because the medium doesn't allow for it. But debating requires you to be assigned a topic and it might go against everything you personally believe, but you have to argue it. And that skill alone would be hugely relevant 
to a large part of the population right now. Because if you think that something is the only way, and this is an idea I developed while studying religion, because I never have had a religion. I'm fascinated by storytelling. And when I was studying religion, getting to college at age 18, not having had one, it was like, here's a buffet. Let's, let's look at this. And I had no biases about, but this is the right one, but I'll look at these other ones. It wasn't like that. It was like, oh, this is telling me this and this. And then the combination of that and being a reporter at Rutgers allowed me to interview a lot of religious figures on campus because for two years, I was the religion writer for the school newspaper. And I would go, sometimes in the same day, I would go to different organizations of different faiths and they always had good stories, but often when I would leave, they were like, but we have the right story. And I was like, well, I was just talking to someone else an hour ago and they had the right story. So how can I just say that you have it? How could I print that or talk that way about it? And that, that helped me develop my critical thinking skills when you're, when you have a, you know, you're not influenced uh, by your upbringing in terms of spirituality, when you were kind of my, my parents were just apolitical and uh, agnostic at best, not atheistic. I think I took that turn over to atheistic just because I studied it more in depth. And that was very helpful. So first off, debating, actually debating with someone where you can look them in the eyes and not just yell at a screen, which is how most people communicate, is extremely helpful, not only to push the conversation forward, but also for your own emotional and, and uh, in intellectual health, which is important. And then the other thing well, for what you said would be to go and understand the journals that these studies you're sharing from PubMed, because PubMed is just a repository. It, there's, there's no real critical engagement of what gets put in there. It's just a collection. That's the, if you go to the nature journals, you're going to have a higher level of, okay, there's some scrutiny here. PubMed is not that. You can go to the library and find books on anything. And that's all PubMed is. So when people are like, but look at this, I, I don't look that it's from PubMed and think it has validity. I then go and I open the study. And this has actually happened with anti-vaxxers is they've shared studies arguing one point. And then I went and read this study and it argued exactly opposite what they thought it was saying. Wow. That's happened on a few occasions mm -hmm. because people just read the headline and they're like, oh, this must mean that. And there are many parts of scientific studies. You have to read through it to understand what they're saying. Mm -hmm. And who's funding the journal? you know, the predominant amount of acupuncture studies are in acupuncture journals, yeah. which is fine because, because that is a niche industry, which needs to survive and they're sharing information. But I'll tell you, I've gone to some and read through a number of articles and I don't see very many that are critical of it. So that's a red flag. You have to find out who's funding and if there's any conflicts of interest, you have to find out what the control situation is. And most people are not going to do this. So it's a, it's a very intense barrier to scientific and media literacy that we're experiencing right now. And I don't know the solution. 
because mm-hmm. most people just don't have that in their lives. They're not going to read more than a headline and maybe the lead, which is the first and second sentence, and that's it. And then they're going to move on with their lives and they're going to, but they're going to remember that headline and that becomes part of their narrative. And that's really dangerous. It is really dangerous. Um, and, you know, um, something happened recently to me where I, I saw something on Instagram that I suspected was not true. And it was a medical claim and it had no citation and it, it was about um, women's health. So my, my sister is a family med OB. So I took a screenshot and I sent it to her and she said, the, the only evidence there is correlation, not causation. And here's why that's probably not true. Here's the other, fa- like, you know, lifestyle factors and circumstances that contribute to this and um, so I gave that feedback to um, the person who had shared it. And we talked it through and got to a, a place where um, we were both grateful for an opportunity to talk through this. And I had learned, I had gotten some meaningful feedback about the way that I give feedback. <laughs> and um, she had been open to the critical thinking feedback and the, and the science that I offered to her. So that was a really positive outcome, but that takes work. And, you know, it's a, it took uh, 45 minutes of my day, at least, you know, to in a pandemic with a full-time job and two kids and lots to do. Um, and so I, I don't think that the solution is necessarily like one at a time. We're out there being critical thinking crusaders. Um, but I agree with you that the problem is severe. I actually think the solution is that if there are people you care about. Mm. And that's what's so overwhelming by social media. Steve Hassan, a cult expert, was on one of our episodes a while ago, and he talks about that. If it's a family member or a friend, the best way to help them is to remind them of the person they were before the indoctrination happened. Mm. And then to be there for them when they come out of it, if they come out of it, to, to, as he puts it, because when he came out of the Moonies, his neighbors didn't say a word about it. They just walked mm. over with a plate of cookies. And that, that stuck with me because if it is someone you care about, that one-on-one work is the only way that's going to happen. And it can feel disempowering because you're like, but I have 10,000 connections on this channel and you're telling me just one, but again, it's the, it's the, it's, if you care about that person, it's important. Mm -hmm. And as conspirituality has grown in ways that I couldn't have foreseen when we started it. And the listenership we have now, which has been growing consistently for this time, there's just been more and more feedback and criticism and all sorts of stuff on social media. And for my own mental health, I've pretty much just checked out of responding Mm -hmm. because it just consumes too much of my time to A, because I also have a full-time job and then the podcast and then some other things that I do and then a wife and three cats and a <laughs> life as well. And I can't emotionally spend this much time on screens just because someone's mad about something. Mm-hmm. I think that critical argument's good. And when I see a valid point, I'll respond to it if the person is really just trying to 
work through and I've changed my mind on things. And that, that is a good utility of social media, but it's rare. Most people just want to share anecdotes or again, just get their own frustrations out. And it's not the right mechanism for that. The only way that you can therefore change a large number of people is just to put out good information. And one thing that's really made me happy over this past year is how many more doctors and medical professionals who have started social media feeds and they're just on there putting out good information. And they're just like, I'm just going to ignore this crazy stuff. And I'm going to tell you what I know as an expert in this field is true. And that's about the best you can do um, because you're not going to change everyone's mind, but that is a powerful tool. And I've seen some of these doctors, their reach get into the hundreds of thousands. And that is a good sign to me because that's really the only way you're going to effectively battle disinformation on a large scale. Is by telling the truth. Yes. And just being unapologetic about it and being like, I've trained for 10 years in this field to understand this. And here's what we know. I listened to that episode. Um, yoga teachers are not doctors. Doctors are not priests. Yeah. And um, it really spoke to me as a psychotherapist because I see so much um, behavioral health and mental health advice from wellness coaches or people who call themselves mental health advocates or or any number of things. Um, and lots of times it is dangerous advice. Oh. Um, sometimes it's innocuous um, or benign enough, not, not necessarily helpful, but I, it's not setting off flags for me. Um, or people really misuse things. Um, a friend invited me onto the Clubhouse app, which I struggle with because as I was perusing the rooms and looking at bios, I would see things like Jungian life coach. And I thought, how can you do that? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I would, yeah. If, if um, my pedigree was yours and I saw that, I would be pretty frustrated. <laughs> yeah. How can you do that? And you shouldn't because that would be very dangerous to ask someone to move into the archetypal realms of their own psyche without the training to hold that space carefully would potentially mean that you are visiting trauma upon people. I've read at least 10 of Jung's books and I would feel not at all qualified to actually speak about them other than referencing them while I'm researching articles, but not to create a sort of life coaching system out of them. That would not be something I would ever feel qualified to do. This, I mean, this is pervasive. And I, I know a number of therapists who are really frustrated that a friend of mine is a public health, meaning before she moved, when the pandemic started, she was working for the city of Los Angeles, making not a ton of money, uh, like dealing with like serious people in poverty with their mental health issues and trying to help coach them. And I know life coaches who make six figures easy, easy, and they have no training whatsoever. And I'm not against the executive coaching idea. Uh, I think there are people who are really good listeners and facilitators 
that crush in that industry. I have a friend who's a men's guide mm-hmm. and he, you know, he does well there and he's built it up. And I, I think there's credibility to it, but, but there, the lack of training and then the things that you, you can tell people and have no liability whatsoever. Yep. No, uh, where, no yep. regulatory body, no ethics guidelines, um, no way for people who are potentially harmed or not helped um, can hold you accountable. You can charge any price and you really, what you're doing is marketing a lifestyle. Yeah. Um, and, and it's, it's almost like an MLM, you know? Oh, completely. Yeah. Um, and so, and I see, I see this with, with the yoga and wellness industry too. Um, and I, I know a lot of physicians who are, are frustrated because people come in to see them eventually, you know, and they've been taking, you know, hundreds of dollars of supplements for years that sometimes have done damage. Mm-hmm. Let's look at this step back from a historical approach of one of my f- favorite examples of what you're talking about. And it also speaks to why people are rightly suspicious of psychiatry and the pharmaceutical industry, for example. Uh, the original trials that allowed Xanax to become regula- legalized by the FDA and put into usage was a 14-week study. One of the two studies was a 14-week study. After four weeks, Xanax was outperforming placebo by a fair amount. After eight weeks, they were even. After 14 weeks, the placebo was far performing better than Xanax with all of the potential harm that Xanax can do for Mm. long-term usage. I'm speaking as someone who suffered from anxiety disorder for 25 years, who Mm. has it under control and no longer has panic attacks, but did take Xanax for a period of my life. So Mm. I understand it anecdotally as well as the reasons why I got into this line of research. Mm. And so how did they get that past the FDA? Well, they only submitted the four week data. Mm. They just scrapped the other 10 weeks and just submitted four weeks and the FDA cleared it. And that's what, this is not the only pharmaceutical that this has happened to. In fact, it's recently happened to ketamine. Mm. My, my, my last book is on psychedelic therapy. I'm a huge proponent activist of psychedelic usage properly Mm -hmm. and in the right conditions. And Mm -hmm. it can be extremely helpful, Mm -hmm. but we have this continual problem where there is so much money in that industry that is doing a lot of harm to people over the long term. And in fact, I've talked to like someone like Lauren Slater, who I interviewed a few years ago, who's been on various cocktail of antidepressants since the 1980s. Mm-hmm. She would love to try psychedelic therapy. She told me this. And she can't because it's contraindicated to all the other stuff she takes. So she can't even try it to see if it would be better for her. And she is not the only one. I've covered this for years at Big Think. And I've had a number of people who are going through this reach out to me, uh, just talking about the problems they're having with the long-term usage of these substances. So that makes people suspicious, rightly so. Mm -hmm. The opioid epidemic, another example, I almost lost a family member to it. Mm -hmm. And it's extremely concerning living in a 
capitalist society with for-profit healthcare. Mm-hmm. The, the, we talk about the greatest nation on earth, the richest, and we can't offer people healthcare. It's ridiculous. It is. Now, here's where we get back to critical thinking. Those things do not negate the fact that vaccines are one of the most efficacious interventions for health that we have yet to discover because they are. Every doctor that I've talked to will quickly tell you, this is the best we know with the evidence we have. There could be better. We just don't know it yet. Chemotherapy. I went through cancer. Mm. My oncologist rightly said, there's probably going to be better developments, but this is the best we have right now. Yeah. And medical professionals will always say that. Wellness influencers will not. Yes. They will stick to a line and just refuse to budge on it despite contradictory evidence. Mm. So one thing we know about humans as we just lived through for four years with this president is that some humans are really enamored by people who don't ever admit fault. Yep. And that is also part of the crossover between a lot of these wellness influencers and the right wing well beyond conservative, like all of the terms we can apply to them, but is their inability to admit fault. Yeah. And that's what's so frustrating. Mm -hmm. Or doubt. There's something incredibly seductive about certainty. Yes. When you are afraid um, or anxious and there is someone that suggests certain solution or a certain uh, culprit. You know, if there's someone certain to blame or there's a certain ideology to follow or there's a certain, this is the um, opiate of religion mm-hmm. in some ways. Um, that, you know, the existential dread of being a finite personality in a finite body um, makes religion or a literalized religion, you know, very, very seductive, soothing, comforting. It, it helps regulate our nervous system. I think that the attraction, the unconscious attraction to some of these wellness claims is similar. If I just do this, I won't get cancer. There is a, an influencer, she goes by Bauhaus wife, uh, I was interviewed by Rolling Stone for a piece that focused on on um, the natural birth movement. And she's one of the figures in that, and she was included in that. And it was pretty funny because she ended up cutting this long screed against me on Instagram and only understood after she published it that it was actually Julian who did the segment on her, not me. <laughs> and instead of taking it down, she just put in the, but the whole thing was just directed at me. And then the whole time I'm like, I didn't say any of this stuff. And even the Rolling Stone article, it wasn't about her. They didn't interview me about her. They interviewed me about spirituality in this movement. So I I never even referenced her, Mm -hmm. but it was all just this, this talk about uh, lack of critical thinking, but there is this certainty that they present that if you go and unpack their personal lives and look at sort of their history, you quickly understand that often, not always, but often 
they are not living anything that they're espousing. Nope. And, but it's that, it's that charade that they're able to put forward that draws people in because right now everyone is confused about what's happening and that's okay. And this is a point that I made. I was uh, actually interviewed by the AP the other day about this. We had an in-depth conversation about this exact topic that yoga and Buddhism and all of these philosophies that we've kind of filtered into America, we still apply a sort of Christian mindset to them because it's the foundation of our thought processes. Yes. So the good and evil and all of the dichotomies that exist there don't exist in other philosophies, but we take in parts and then we automatically structure them along to the ways we're accustomed to thinking. And this, these philosophies of predominantly India, because yoga and Buddhism both originate there, but uh, you can argue also if you go to Taoism, China, and the rest of Asia, there's not this certainty that, there, that the divine energies or whatever they want to call them is for our good. In mm-hmm. fact, you can argue the opposite. They're not. Mm-hmm. It, it, they're not going to use that word before, and they are. It's just, we're just part of a continual process. But if you can tell a story and sell a story about how doing these things will bring you to some special place down the road, because that's all it is over and over again. And whatever supplement is in this year, in two years, it's going to be another one that's going to do the same thing, which it doesn't really do, but it's going to be sold that way. And you see this over and over again, especially as I'm 45 now. And as I get older and continue to be in this industry and look around, I'm just like, I'm just 20 years back with another set of products and faces selling the same ideas. We're just going to keep repeating that sort of story. But when it's presented with certainty, it's going to keep drawing people in. Yeah. Yes. The damage, not, I think a lot about the like psychological um, consequences, I guess I should say, to absorbing this, even if you're not actively participating or seeking out these sort of like wellness paradigms or religious absolutes or political absolutes, they are um, so prolific in, everywhere we turn to get information or to connect. Um, and, you know, a lot of our, a lot of the way that we make sense of the world is still really, I don't mean primitive in a uh, derogatory way, but it's connected to our reliance on five senses. And we typically believe what we see, you know, that's it. If we see it, we think it's true. It's, I, I have a lot of, um, clients who, when they, they process the anxiety or the depression that arises as a result of being on social media, what they're talking about is believing what they see. They believe the filtered, edited, um, carefully curated version of somebody else's lived experience. And then they, they find themselves, um, you know, not measuring up. And, and I, I, I feel a little inoculated against this. Um, 
because I understand that that it's not true. You know, that it's a that it's a story. People are telling stories, they're selling stories. Even even people who aren't public figures, they're selling they're selling a version of themselves they'd like to believe in. Yeah. You yeah. know. And so it's um it's it's easier for me to kind of laugh about that and and not get too pulled in. Um but I I think that um you know, I was just thinking about this on Valentine's Day because I saw so many people posting about how this holiday is always hard for them online, you know? And, and I, I know, I'm gonna borrow a phrase from Brene Brown because I hack into people's lives for a living. I know that um, even happy relationships aren't very happy all the time and that, the really satisfying ones um, come as a result of a lot of hard work and hard work is hard and painful and sometimes really humiliating and scary. So, um, but when we don't know how to sort of step back from what we're absorbing, which I think is connected to this idea of critical thinking, um, then it's easier to fall for the story someone's selling, whether, and whether that actually means you wind up signing up for coaching or you buy a bunch of supplements or you don't get a vaccine that could save your life, or you just feel bad about yourself because you don't have like the perfect marriage or the perfect house or the perfect body. I recently did a segment on an episode about traditional Chinese medicine and the context was environmental destruction of ecosystems happening because of traditional Chinese medicine. And it received a lot of pushback, which is fine. But when I fielded the comments and looked at them, I pointed out the points of the text where I had already addressed and alleviated their concerns about this. Like the fact that if some of these remedies work, let's use them. If like, I'm not arguing against that, that was never the point of it. It was just saying that there are these beliefs in this system that are damaging entire ecosystems around the planet. And it's run by the mafia and cartels all over. And we need, you need to be critical about those things because it's affecting everyone. This one folk remedy for arthritis, which is unproven and doesn't, doesn't work is affecting an entire region two hours for me uh, down in Baja, California and destroying an entire ecosystem and, and actually making a few different species of fish extinct, extinct because of this. And that was what the segment was about. But Julian, after it came and I got all that pushback, Julian mentioned something on Slack. He's like, people don't listen to what you say. They think about how you make them feel. And so if, if your segment attacks something, even if just from a different angle than they're accustomed to, they're still attacking what they're studying and believe in. And so you did address their, what they said in that segment, but they didn't hear that mm. because they were too fuming about the other things that you said. Mm. And I don't know. And I understand that as a, as a point in, um, in, in discourse in general, it actually reminds me of, for years, people were asking Jung to write a layperson's book and he refused. Yeah. And then, and then he had the dream and he was like, wait a second, I'm talking about dreams my entire career. And I had a dream telling me to do this. And then that became one of his, his best-selling book, mm -hmm. which is fantastic. It was my entry point into Jung in the first place. So it's like, it's, it's 
good that he followed his own advice, but people are not uh, as astute as he is, for example, of, of being able to pull back and actually investigate even at the contradictions and actually change course. Uh, the ability to say I'm wrong um, universally, and we see this over and over again, when public figures get called out and they apologize and said, I was wrong. And it's a heartfelt apology. Most people move on and we're like, okay, good. Learn from that. And then come back in. Mm -hmm. But we see what happens when they don't or they're half-hearted apologies or not really apologies. And that just leaves, um, that leaves a lot of bad taste in people's mouths. And I don't know how you effectively teach these skills we've been discussing to an animal that's not designed for globalization? <sighs> yeah. Um, I, you know, my former analyst, Jungian analyst, uh, she used to tell me that um, actually Jung wasn't sure consciousness was going to work. <laughs> like, <laughs> he, didn't, he didn't know if we were going to make it. Oh, I'm reading a book by John Gray right now, a philosopher. It's, it's actually called Feline Philosophy, Cats and the Meaning of Life. And it's, it's a heavy philosophical book about the meaning of life, but then it also includes why we should model cats and why we can't. Mm. And it all comes down to metacognition. Mm. It all re reflexive thought, right? It all is the fact that we can think about our thought processes, whereas we don't really ever live in the moment truly. Mm. Uh, and he points to cats as the perfect example of an animal that is truly Zen, <laughs> completely in the moment all of the time. And uh, I mean, I, I talk about cats a lot because obviously I, I love them and we've lived with them for a long time. But they, um, cats do not learn from uh, good and bad. Like you can't yell like a dog. You can yell at and they'll get, oh, bad. Cats don't understand that. You can clicker train them but that's associated to food. So you can, you can, you can manipulate feline behavior by bribing them essentially. Mm -hmm. uh, but you, they, they will never understand good and bad period. They yeah. will just live in the moment as that moment presents itself. And that is something that our, what we call consciousness, what consciousness is a loaded term. I actually brought this up in an episode, but reflexive thought or metacognition, the ability to think about our thought processes um, we will, we will never have that sort of inner peace with what we really are. And you can actually argue that a lot of the discord that we experience personally and socially comes from the fact that, like you said, we think we're something when we're really something else. And because we can't come to terms with that, we're going to suffer. Yes. Y yeah. I actually think that is like the fundamental psychological problem for most people. Um, you know, I was a religion major as well, um, undergrad, and and then I went to grad school in psychology, and then I studied at the Young Institute after that. And um, it wasn't until I had practiced this um, Jungian way of working with stories symbolically, stories, dreams, myths, fairy tales, that. I started to get curious about my own religious tradition and its myths and what they would look like if I worked with them this way. And um, I, I now have this um, 
sense of the Garden of Eden story as a story about reflective, the reflective function, the ability to think about thinking, mm -hmm. metacognition, and how when that developed in the human being, it sort of left Eden because it could then experience itself as separate, doubt its own instincts, um, feel shame, you know, notice it was naked. A lot of my Christian friends and associates would take issue with that, but it symbolically makes so much sense to, to think, um, you know, leaving that instinctual consciousness or like that unit of bliss at being at home with oneself in your immediate experience would have come to an end once we started thinking about thinking. All language is metaphor, all of it. Your, your words have no inherent value. It's what you assign to them. So every, every word is a metaphor in that sense. And uh, John Gray writes about that Garden of Eden story, but I remember it from Bill Moyers, who did a book on the Garden of Eden 20 some years ago. And they mm -hmm. talked about that exact concept of consciousness being the recognition of nudity and that, 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 oh, I have to cover. That was the, mm -hmm. that was the moment that brought it over. So that, that idea has been around for a while. And it's one that I believe in. I, I actually think that the most valuable class that I took in religious studies was a class called Bible is literature. Mm, yeah. Because you're reading it as a story, which is all it is. Mm -hmm. It's, it's, it, there's no difference between that and any other mythology. It's just that it was canonized in a certain way by mm -hmm. a church with an agenda. Yes. <laughs> so yeah. if you can't, if you, and the, the literalist readings of scripture has always blown my mind because if you can't, again, it lacks, it points to a lack of understanding of historical consequences uh, when I really got serious about studying yoga, I started studying the history of India at that time, because I'm like, if you don't understand the culture that created these ideas, you're not going to understand the ideas. Mm -mm. Then, then you're going to, again, you're going to apply them to your set of circumstances at your time and think that they translate and they don't necessarily. And as we've proven over and over, they often don't. Mm. Yeah, they don't. Um, and you know, I, I try to resist there. There's something coming up in me when I'm talking to you right now, where, um, there's, there's a degree of privilege in, in being able to, um, when I, when I was in undergrad, I, I took this philosophy class once and the professor on the first day said, you know, unless there's a medical emergency, you cannot pass my class if you miss even once. And, and she said, the reason that this is my rule is because the luxury and the privilege of having four years of your life to just learn things is obscene. And, and I expect you to show me that you take it seriously in order for me to think you deserve credit in this class. <laughs> And it made a huge impression on me that it is, it is, it is a privilege to have been educated, to have had the time to explore, think through, read, absorb, 
grow, expand, let go of a certain belief system because you see its limits, um, adopt new ideas. If you're just trying to survive or you're just trying to belong, that's probably not necessarily a risk you can take. And uh, I don't know what to say about that other than I wanna, I wanna be careful not to um, be a snob. <laughs> Yeah, it's it it is challenging because you will only ever understand your own circumstances in the community you're around. So again, we weren't designed for globalization. We weren't designed to uh, be able to communicate in the ways that we do, and so we have a lot of catching up to do. Uh, there is a great episode of Radio Lab that from last week where they talk about that, where they they took this uh, Facebook did these sessions in six different places around the world. And they had three responses of like, we should do this and three that we shouldn't. And they went through why people said they shouldn't. And in America, you would think that that would be an anti-freedom way of expression. Anti, it would be censorship. But when they pointed out what was actually happening in Ethiopia, when they showed the whole, when they laid out the story of how they got to that answer, you're like, oh, that makes a lot of sense. So you have a globalized country that actually does have to operate differently if they want to play in different areas. And we, we don't, everything we know about capitalism isn't structured that way. Mm -hmm. Capitalism is capitalism is Nestle realizing that their sales are down in America so that they create river barges to go through the Amazon rainforest to sell to tribal natives at cheaper prices, but to keep monetizing. Mm -hmm. And then all of a sudden you start seeing diabetes pop up in these areas because they're doing this that that's what that's how capitalism operates and we the food companies kind of got have gotten away with that for a long time because it's a resource uh, especially in america where we have so many laws structured to, pre to present uh, to protect the industrial food giants that um you can't really hide in social media because everyone has access to it mm -hmm. they can they can see where things are being made in a different way and so we're going to have to grapple with that. Um, even in the ways that I speak about topics, I do recognize that my lived experience is not the same as a lot of people. Um, I, I think the one way that I've decided to try to counteract that and at least own up to it is by openly admitting my flaws whenever necessary, because there are many and I'm trying to get better at them, but I also recognize that there is no such thing as perfection and that we're malleable cr creatures dependent on the circumstances we're in from place to place. And at least owning up to that and admitting and not trying to present, put forward this idea of a, of a autonomous <laughs> sovereign being that can navigate anything, I think is at least a little more honest with myself and it might not allow me to monetize people in the same way, but I feel better when I go to bed at night. Yeah, that is, that really speaks to me a lot. Um, hmm. There's, so it, you're talking about some humility, you know, even though I'm speaking to you and I'm aware that you are very bright and articulate and have a lot of, um, really meaningful things to offer this conversation and the world writ large, but, but, um, our culture doesn't really teach humility. It, it, um, rejects it 
and, and can be uh, pretty punishing toward it. And so coming, finding a, a path, you know, psychological or spiritual set of values that um, invite the, the discipline of humility, I, I think is pretty rare. It's rare here in America, for sure. It does exist. And the emphasis of Buddhism is humility. And again, my thesis paper in college was the ways that Buddhism gets mistranslated into America. Mm -hmm. So that's why I reference it a lot, because you can't, again, just, I, I very much appreciate the secular readings of Buddhism by people like Stephen Batchelor, for example. But Buddhism is still a religion filled with gods and afterworlds and different realms of existence and very much in the folk traditions. And so you can't just take these, you, I, I think you can take parts of it and imply it because that's evolution. But I think understanding where they come from is also important. But I will say that when you look at Buddhism and Taoism, which were my favorite areas of study, humility is baked in. Mm -hmm. And it's, it's so much a part of being able to navigate the challenges of consciousness. Uh, whereas, again, in the Western tradition, certainty rules. That's going to translate into, a very, into an animal that's very sure of itself and not really set up for humility. It's so interesting because, um, so I'm, I majored in religion at a Baptist university in Texas, Baylor University. <clears throat> and my my professors were the, in the religion department, almost all of them were ministers and also PhDs in theology or religion or something. And um, they were the most liberal people at the school. And they were, they were the most um, like, humble, we, we don't know, you know, that the, what we know, we have historical context, we have the ability to look at the original language, we have um, the ability to understand how ancient Semitic people would have told stories and for what purpose and why and how, and um, we know what a midrash is, we can walk around, the idea that you can walk around inside of these symbols your whole life and allow them to grow as you grow. And so, when you said that your thesis was about um, the way that Buddhism gets mistranslated from one culture to the next, it makes me think that, you know, the Judeo, I'll speak about just the Judeo-Christian tradition um, because it's what I know better academically, um, that it also gets poorly translated from a Middle Eastern or Near Eastern, um, cultural context to a, you know, Greco-Roman and then, you know, European and American. You only need to thank Walter Salman for that, right? Yeah. Yeah. And um, Constantine. <laughs> well, yeah. I mean, but I, the image of him as a white man is Walter Salman. I mean, the portrait of Jesus that, that really <laughs> solidified him being a white man in, in our eyes. <laughs> oh yeah. That portrait hung in my grandparents' house. Yeah. I'm familiar. <laughs> it was like a very Scandinavian Jesus. Yeah. 
Yeah. Okay. And they were Scandinavian, which is maybe um, the thing we're tiptoeing around is that we tend to make God in our image because that gives us some feeling of certainty as well. You know, that we ourselves are eternal. Yeah, there's there's a number of speculations on as to why that is in our in our biology and the, but there has been nothing substantial that I've ever seen to prove it out and I think that um Ernest Becker's work for example on the fear of death uh coming from Freud also looking a bit at Jung in that work um explains a lot about our neuroses and we can speculate on it and pontificate about it, but most people are going to live that life. Yeah. And grappling with that is, you know, it's challenging when you don't, but there, that's, that's where humility and empathy both come into play. Um, I found my best relationships happen when I might be in disagreement with people and either we debate it on the terms without getting overly emotional about it, or we just let it go. And we talk about the things we relate on. Yeah. And again, social media is not built for that no. uh, in any capacity. Um, in fact, in a, in a few minutes, I have a clubhouse. I hold a weekly clubhouse for conspirituality. And I always say this, and it's, it's true. Most of the time, it's true that the ways that people act on social media would never be how they act in person. Last week, I knew I was entering the lion's den because I had spoken about traditional Chinese medicine in the ways that I had, and I knew it was a problem with some people. And a few people who were either practitioners or, or professionals, and it came on the clubhouse and challenged me. But they were talking like we're talking right now. Yeah. We were coming to terms, and I was explaining my points, and they were explaining their points. Nothing gets heated. Mm. Uh, Eric Weinstein came on my clubhouse a few weeks ago because we had criticized his brother, Brett. Uh, the week before. And same thing. We talked for 40 minutes while 2000 people listened in. And I basically interviewed him and we talked and I knew he came in and I knew why he was there, but there was no problems. We talked and we thanked each other at the end because that's, that's what a debate is. And that's discourse. And that's what we need more of. And although clubhouse does not allow for the, I can see you right now. Um, that's okay because even just hearing the tone of someone's voice, mm-hmm. I've often said this, like when people read my writing, they're reading me in their voice and they're not hearing the way that I present it. At least with the podcasting form, they can actually hear how I'm presenting, which is part of, you know, it takes care of one barrier, but the real way to take care of those barriers is face-to-face interactions and the mediums we have don't allow for that. And so we have to grapple with how we progress um, in such a setup. And I, I don't know. I mean, we're trying to do the best we can, by, like I said, presenting good information, but there's always going to, those barriers are always going to exist with these mediums. You've actually just helped me sort of understand a little bit better why this year has been so um, traumatic for so many people's social relationships. It's because they've been taken out of the context of face-to-face, voice-to-voice, body-to-body co-regulation into squares and text on a screen, which gives us a lot of opportunities to both misunderstand and also project our own ambivalence 
onto one another. Yeah. I always consider social media predominantly a huge projection (laughs) vehicle uh, at best. And again, I love it. I, part of my job full-time I've worked in social media. I think it's great on so many levels, but when you're drilling down into the stuff we're talking about on the podcast, we're really exploring the dangers of it. And it, it is mentally and emotionally draining sometimes because I have to listen to an hour of these people's talking because I want to really understand what they're saying. And I leave them sometimes and I just feel ugh, like I just want to go to bed and curl up and just wake up anew. And it's, it's, um, it's, 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 it's hard, but I think it's important work too. I think just listening to people, listening to what they're telling you and being able to decipher it and translate it is, I think, a valuable skill that's needed more of. And I think that is partly why our podcast has been successful in reaching so many people that we never had contact with because they didn't have a frame of reference for a lot of these ideas. And we're just trying to explore the bigger, more holistic picture of how we got to where we are. It is really important work. Um, even though you're an atheist, I'm going to say you're doing the Lord's work. <laughs> I'm fine with that. I, I, I make no claims of being certain, but, uh, but I just, uh, it's from the research I've done. That's all. <laughs> Good. Okay. Here's my final question. Um, what is one thing you wish everybody knew? I, I mean, one word I've always thought of that we've already covered a bit, but I will reference again, which is humility, is that ability to, that ability to, when you are certain about something, to really explore what the other side of that topic is and understand the conditions that led for it. Uh, I have been someone who has built a life trying to think about other cultures. For 10 years, I worked as a world music journalist. Mm-hmm. Uh, and got to travel quite extensively and interview hundreds of artists from around the world. It was a very fortunate time of my life to be able to understand that America is a bubble <laughs> and, and to see beyond it. And it, it helps you to understand both where other people are coming from, as well as the fears that led to Trump and mm-hmm. led to the xenophobia and racism that's pervasive right now. I can understand it. I don't agree with it. And I think we can be better than that, but at least trying to understand the conditions that lead to it is important. So that starts in humility. That starts with recognizing that you might not be right. And let me at least see what's going on over there, even if I don't agree with it. And Mm -hmm. I think that is a life skill that anyone can develop with patience and time. Yeah, that's beautiful. That's good. That's a really good prescription too. I hope so. (laughs) I am so grateful to Derek for taking the time to sit down with me and have a really thoughtful, nuanced conversation about how we might approach the information that comes our way on the social media landscape. I hope you all have taken away a multitude of things to better equip you to use critical thinking as you digest what gets shown to you in all the ways that we're engaged together online. The Hidden World is produced by David Gomez. Our theme song is written by David Gomez, and I'm your host, Whitney Logan. Whitney Logan.
be good to yourselves and each other. 